The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. here at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your top five at five. We begin with a more aggressive Fed strategy. Markets reeling on the word. The central bank is eyeing steps to shed billions from the balance sheet while also ramping up rate hikes. And the Oracle of Omaha, he's in a buying mood. Shares of HP taking off. After Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway takes a multi-billion dollar stake and Amazon facing fresh scrutiny from federal regulators digging into the e-commerce giants' practices around the use of your data. And lawmakers set to take on the hot budget button issue of lawmakers being allowed to trade stocks amid questions about conflicts of interest. But some new data suggests that lawmakers, they may not actually be that great at timing the markets. And he's back. He's back. Tiger Woods set to tee off at the Masters as golf's greatest player makes his big return, bringing big attention to the game. It is Thursday, April 7th, and you're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. And good morning. I am Frank Collin in for Brian Sullivan. Let's kick off this hour with a check on the markets and your money. Stock futures right now, well, basically pretty flat. We're seeing right here the Dow <laughs> pretty much flat. The Nasdaq ticking up slightly higher. Now, this is as stocks are facing a two-day losing streak on the back of the Federal Reserve's latest policy meeting minutes. The central bank appearing ready to increasingly tighten monetary policy, including unloading as much as $95 billion in assets from its balance sheet every month starting in May. On the back of those Fed meeting minutes, also want to check the bond market. Take a look at the 10-year right now. We're looking at the 10-year yield ticking right here at 2.57% above that 2.5 benchmark that has really put a lot of tech stocks under pressure. And also turning to the oil market, WTI back under $100 a barrel. This after the IEA announced plans to tap 60 million barrels of oil from reserves. That's on top of the strategic reserve release by the U.S. Crude right now, again, under $100 a barrel, sitting right now basically at $97 a barrel. All right, time to go worldwide. World, uh, can't get the words out. Worldwide right now. Bit of a tongue twister this morning, Juliana. You're in our London newsroom with a look at the early trade over there in Europe. Good morning. Frank, good morning. You're too excited. I don't blame you. The European equity markets this morning are on the mend. We did have a tough day yesterday. Much like you saw stateside, we saw some pretty sizable losses in European equity markets. The main benchmark, the stock 600, dropped about 1.5%. Cyclicals driving those losses. But this morning, it's green for nearly every major region. The one outlier here, FTSE 100 here in the UK, is trading about 12 basis points or so lower. We have seen a strong uh, demand for sterling, and sterling and the FTSE 100 tend to have an inverse relationship. So that's the standout here. But otherwise, fairly broad-based rally taking place in Europe this morning. From a sector perspective, this is what the split looks like. We've got healthcare up on nearly 2%, leading the gains. Chemicals, travel, and leisure. On the downside, you have oil and gas trading lower, about nine-tenths of a percent, and basic resources off more than 1%. Within this oil and gas basket, we are seeing some underperformance, in particular, in Shell. So let me take you to that stock. It is in focus this morning because the oil giant said it will write down between four and $5 billion in the first quarter due to its exit 
from Russia. That is up from the $3.4 billion impairment charge the oil and gas giant had previously predicted from cutting its activities in the market. However, the energy giant added in a trading update that the changed outlook will not impact the company's earnings thanks to rising prices and profits from higher LNG trading. Frank, back over to you. All right. Thanks a lot. Now to your morning's other top stories, including President Biden naming a pair of new nominees to serve at the SEC. Silvana Hanau is here with those details. Good morning, Silvana. Hey, Frank. Good morning. Well, the president nominating two new commissioners to help fill some key vacancies at the agency. Biden tapping Jamie Lizarraga to take the Democratic seat of outgoing commissioner Allison Lee. Lizarraga is currently a senior advisor to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. The president also picking Mark Uyeda, an SEC attorney temporarily working with the Senate Banking Committee's minority staff. Both will need to be confirmed by the Senate before taking the positions. The U.S. Army Corps of Engineers is withdrawing SpaceX application to expand launch facilities in Texas. According to documents obtained by CNBC, the move is being made after the company failed to provide environmental information to the agency requested. SpaceX was looking to build several new pieces of launch-related infrastructure. CEO Elon Musk had previously threatened to move operations to Florida if the approval didn't happen in Texas. And Samsung Electronics is projecting a record revenue for its first quarter results. The company also says it expects a 50 percent jump in operating profits for the period from the previous year. And Frank, Samsung is citing strength for its memory chips and a well-received rollout of its latest flagship smartphones for the expected results out later this month. All right, Silvana, thank you. Silvana Hanau. All right, turning our attention now to D.C. President Biden rolling out new sanctions against Russia, vowing to hold Moscow accountable for what he described as major war crimes in Ukraine. This is the mayor of the Ukrainian city of Maripol, put out the number of civilians killed there at more than 5,000. NBC's Bree Jackson joins us now from Washington with much more on this story. Good morning, Bree. Good morning, Frank. Well, President Biden says that sanctions will stifle Russia's economy for years to come. But there is mounting pressure for the U.S. and its allies to do more to stop Russia's war. A bird's eye view reveals the scope of the devastation caused by Russian forces. Stories of those on the ground, some recovering bodies, are giving a closer look at atrocities in Ukraine. There's nothing less happening than major war crimes. Responsible nations have to come together to hold these perpetrators accountable. President Biden unleashing a new round of sanctions, targeting Vladimir Putin's daughters and Russian banks. They'll not be able to touch any of their money. They'll not be able to do any business here. The president says sanctions so far have wiped out the last 15 years of Russia's economic gains. Ukraine's president wants more pressure applied on Russia, saying sanctions have failed to stop Putin's attacks. The U.S. is holding off sanctioning China and India for buying Russian oil, money that helps fund Putin's war. There are loopholes that piece by piece, one by one, we're trying to close. Sometimes that takes time. The administration vows to hold Russia accountable. That includes assisting with an international war crimes investigation. The world sees what is happening in Ukraine. The Justice Department sees what is happening in Ukraine. As Russian forces withdraw from areas like Kyiv, we're seeing some of the destruction left behind. Ukraine still bracing for more in other parts of the country. 
And lawmakers on Capitol Hill are calling for a federal report on evidence of war crimes committed by uh, Russian forces in Ukraine. Frank. Bree, thanks for the latest. All right, turning our attention now back to the markets after another rough day for Wall Street that saw all three indexes end the day in the red. The Nasdaq now down some 4% in the last two trading days alone. Investors growing more cautious over a possible looming recession, an increasingly hawkish Fed, and declining earning forecast across multiple sectors. One possible bright spot, consumer spending. New data from MasterCard showing that Americans are returning to their pre-pandemic spending patterns something I discussed with Linda Kirkpatrick, MasterCard's president of North America. What consumers are doing is really spending, resuming their spend on both goods and on services. Uh, So they're focusing on their passions and categories that uh, are related to travel and live entertainment and indoor dining and other in-person activities. So uh, a bit of a shift. Yeah, we're seeing quite a few shifts in the markets, at least. Joining me now is Ivory Johnson, founder of Delancey Wealth Management. He's also a member of the CNBC Financial Advisor Council. Ivory, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. All right, let's dig right into it. Uh, The market market clearly has a lot of concerns about the Fed's plan to battle inflation. Right now, inflation up 8% over the last year, well over the Fed's target of 2%. And I think we're past calling it transitory officially now. Now, you share a lot of these concerns, but specifically, let's talk about what you're most concerned about. Is it reducing the balance sheet, the rate increases, or is it the timing of all of it? Well, it's, it's, it's a little bit of both. You know, they're, they're tightening into an environment where the GDP is actually slowing already. Uh, that's been reflected in, in, the, in the, the, the flat yield curve. They're, they're not essentially compensating bond investors uh, for time. We're seeing that with earnings per share guidance. The, the earnings per share guidance is actually negative. More companies are negative for three consecutive quarters. Um, so that was already bad enough that they're tightening by raising the Fed funds rate. But the balance sheet, I think, has, has spooked the markets in the sense that, and just to add context, the Federal Reserve's balance sheet has increased from $1 trillion in 2008 to $4.5 trillion in 2014 to eight, oh, close to $9 trillion today. And if you were to look at a chart of the S&P 500 and the Federal Reserve's balance sheet, they're almost in lockstep. And so there are really two ways you can reduce the size of the balance sheet. You can allow the bonds to roll off, which means that those bonds, as they mature, are not refinanced. There's a trillion dollars in treasuries that are going to mature in 2022, another one trillion dollars that mature in, in, in 2023. Or they can get more aggressive and actually start selling bonds that are on the balance sheet. And that's far more aggressive than I think the market would would tolerate because not only are you rehypothecating debt, you're pulling money out of the economy, but you're also now putting the Treasury Department in a position where they're competing with the Federal Reserve as they issue bonds to pay for deficit spending. And that may be one of the reasons you're seeing yields on the long end start to rise. All right. So obviously the market's concerned about a lot of this plan. Uh, One other thing I want to touch on, I know you're very concerned just about consumer spending right now. Obviously, last year we had one point two trillion in in, uh, stimulus. Very unlikely we're going to get anything like that this year. That's one of the reasons why you're actually staying away from tech and growth stocks. So you're you're down on those. But what areas are you bullish? So I'm I'm bullish on gold. Um, You know, you had the segment on on Russia. And, you know, so what the United States has essentially done is they, they've weaponized the U.S. dollar. And so that might incent some of the sovereign wealth funds and central banks to actually buy gold um, in, 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 their, in their portfolios. But also gold does well in an environment where you have disinflation, 
it's not that inflation is going to go down. It's just not going to go up at the same rate it did last year. So anytime you see on a rate of change basis, inflation and the economy decelerate, gold has done well. And then obviously there's some, some bond proxies like utilities, consumer staples, REITs. These are things that are defensive in nature. Uh, and then it'll be interesting to see what happens with bond yields, because it, it may come to pass that as the economy slows down, bond yields stop going up and the Fed stops getting as hawkish as they are, that mm -hmm. would actually make bonds more attractive, but particularly if it's a safe haven trade. So it remains to be seen if, if bonds on the long end actually become a way to be defensive in this environment as well. Yeah, we'll have to keep our eye on bonds, especially today. Ivory Johnson, we appreciate the insight. Thank you. For All right, when we come back here on Worldwide Exchange, Jay Powell and the Fed looking to ramp up the window of its easy money policy. Former Fed Vice Chair Roger, uh, Roger Ferguson lays out just how aggressive the central bank may get. Plus, navigating the ongoing supply chain pressures, the CEO of ESW lays out how his company is doing just that, including a key partnership with one shipping giant. And later, we'll go live overseas as Secretary of State Blinken and fellow NATO members meet to map out their strategy to stop Russia's continued invasion of Ukraine. A very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. UPS is expanding their global e-commerce presence. The shipping logistics giant announcing a partnership with direct-to-consumer technology company ESW in order to connect with consumers in a more localized way. It's a move that will help UPS grow and speed up its cross-border commerce at a time when the global supply chain is facing a pretty much almost constant disruption. Joining us now is Patrick Bousquet-Siobhan, CEO and President of Americas for ESW. Patrick, thank you for being here. Good to be with you, Frank. So really quick, I just want to lay out what cross-border online shopping or cross-border e-commerce is. That's when someone from another country buys something, for example, from the U.S., and they get it shipped to them uh, in that country. So first off, I want to talk to you about uh, supply chain issues and logistics issues. Over the last year here in the U.S., we went to the store a lot of time, and stuff just wasn't there. Has that promoted cross-border e-commerce, or has that hurt cross-border e-commerce? Uh, generally speaking, Frank, I think it has promoted e-commerce. Uh, we have had a very unique uh, of two years where consumers around the world as stores in their local countries, local neighborhood were closing, uh, were basically uh, having to access global goods. And they started discovering that buying directly from, from brands and retailers overseas was actually quite convenient. They started trusting the process and therefore we're seeing a lot of cross-border trade right now. You know, by all forecasts, uh, cross-border in the consumer goods space should reach about 750 billion US dollars by 2023. So a massive growth over the last couple of years that we see 
now in a sustained way as consumers are getting used to buy cross-border internationally. Well, you certainly work with some global brands, including Nike and Estee Lauder. One thing you do is you localize their websites. Why is that important for companies as they try to promote direct-to-consumer sales, especially across borders? I think consumers' experience has got to be as local as possible, right? So you behave in a certain way. You are used to some payment methods in your domestic market. And therefore, you want to make sure that brands, as they reach out to those global consumers, are offering the same easy, convenient, trustworthy payment options, written options, and direct communication with the brands. So our view is that we need to be as native as possible uh, with our technology and the service that we provide to our uh, global brand partners. So you're obviously uh, trying to help companies increase their sales generally. You know, if you go on a site, I know if I do, if I see it's in euros or yens, I'm a little bit more hesitant because, number one, I have to do the conversion. I got to figure out a few things. Um, but one question, as you increase these sales across borders, obviously you face more supply chain challenges. How does ESW help companies navigate those supply chain challenges through your alliance with UPS? So the UPS uh, alliance is uh, uh, literally breakthrough. Uh, it brings two ecosystems together. Um, ESW technology, which is deep localization uh, through easy and light plug-in into our partner's brand, uh, TechStack, uh, and, and whatever platform they're trading on. And we serve to the international consumers a very local customer experience. That means prices that they are used to in their local currency. Uh, we take care of all the compliance issues. We take care of all the duties and taxes that are relating to international sales. So that is no surprise at the time when the consumer wants to transact. And we offer to them in most geographies, up to 200 markets around the world, a very local price, which includes duties and taxes. So it's no surprise at the time when it, which it checks out. Mm-hmm. Where UPS comes in is that basically their extensive outbound U.S. Uh, logistics ecosystem, their custom brokerage platform, plugging in with our own ecosystems, will get brands in the U.S. to offer their service in about four weeks' time now to the global consumer base. So, Patrick, obviously you have a lot of uh, insight into global freight, its rates, delays, and things like that. Uh, uh, Big customers like Nike and Estee Lauder, also your partnership with UPS. What are you hearing about potential of a freight recession, something we're worried about here in the U.S.? Uh, And as as far as log jams, obviously we've had some big disruptions like the port of Shenzhen Shenzhen being shut down temporarily. Uh, What's the picture that you're seeing either from your customers or from your alliance from UPS? I think there are some sustained challenges, uh, Frank, that emerged in the autumn of last year. We saw how challenging the the autumn-winter season, especially for those brands, some of our clients in the fashion side of the business or even the luxury goods space. I think that the disruption has been massive. We were hoping for recovery faster than it's happening now. Obviously, the war in Ukraine is not helping to normalize uh, the uh, availability and the capacity worldwide. We're still off, which is where we were pre-2019. COVID. Uh, And so we see that going on probably throughout the remaining of this calendar year, even though we expect the the peak season this year uh, to be actually in a better place by the time we get into September, October, November. But continued pressure on capacity, inflation obviously ramping up on the supply chain side, rampant across the board. Obviously, uh, as at ESW, we're able to leverage a one and a half billion dollars of volume globally to offer our clients the most efficient rates possible as they fulfill international orders and demand. All right, Patrick Bousquet-Javon, we appreciate your insight and you being here. Thank you. All right, still on deck here on Worldwide Exchange as Congress mulls overhauling rules on lawmakers making stock trades. 
We'll look at just how their investments really stack up. New data that may actually surprise you. That's coming up next. Today's big number, 55%. That's the share electric vehicles will make up of total car sales by the end of the decade, according to research by Goldman Sachs. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Diving into those growing calls to overhaul rules for Congress when it comes to trading stocks. Amid that hearing, data shedding light on how good, if at all, members of Congress are when it comes to investing. Alon Moy joins us now with much more on those findings. I think a lot of people's ears are perking up this morning, Alon. Good morning. Well, good morning, Frank. There has been a lot of outrage over the potential for members of Congress to trade stocks and then profit from their own policies. But are they actually making any money? Well, not really, at least not any more than the average investor. Recent research from Dartmouth University found that, if anything, lawmakers underperformed the broader market. They looked at eight years of trades in the House and Senate and compared them to a similar basket of stocks. Over six months, stocks purchased by members of the House or their families performed 26 basis points worse than the index. Senators and their families were 36 basis points lower. Congress's stock sales look slightly better. The House was 11 basis points behind the basket, the Senate 27. But none of those readings were statistically significant. The researchers even looked at the best performing stock picks and at the portfolios of lawmakers who had been investigated for insider trading. Ultimately, none of them showed so-called abnormal returns. Still, there are caveats here. It's impossible to know exactly how much money any single lawmaker made or lost because their financial disclosures don't give us enough detail to calculate that. And because this research focused on average returns, it is possible that could mask one-time gains from insider or inappropriate trading. But this will all be part of the debate we're likely going to hear today when the House holds that hearing on whether lawmakers should be prohibited from trading individual stocks. Frank, is this problem really about the profits or about the public perception? Well, I mean, there's definitely uh, a lot of thoughts about it, hot button issue for sure. So my question for you is, does this research help or hurt the ban, the push to ban trading in Congress? Yeah, so this research really cuts both ways. You can look at it and say, well, if they're not beating the market, then clearly they're not trading on any type of insider information because you would expect them to do better than the average investor if so. On the other hand, you could say, hey, maybe they're getting insider information, but they don't really know what to do with it, and they're not very good at investing overall. So I think that really what you hear from lawmakers is that they want to avoid even the appearance 
of a conflict of interest, especially at a time when trust in Congress is so low. And so I think that is what is fueling this debate over whether to ban uh, lawmakers from trading individual stocks. They don't even want to have the whiff of any problems. Yeah, some thought-provoking research either way. Alain Moy down in D.C. Thank you. All right, still on deck. General Motors reporting looking to make a big splash for the return of its Chevy Bolt following a massive recall. Now the automaker plans to drum up interest in the sideline EV. That's coming up next. And if you haven't already, follow our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, check us out on Apple, Spotify, or other podcast apps. Worldwide Exchange. We'll be right back. A more hawkish Fed taking shape, the central bank outlining a potentially more aggressive plan to wind down its easy money policies and combat inflation. Former Fed Vice Chair Roger Ferguson, he's here to break it all down. Secretary of State Antony Blinken in Brussels this morning meeting with fellow NATO members to map out the group's next steps over Russia's continued crimes in Ukraine. We are live overseas with the very latest. And Warren Buffett once again in a buying mood, revealing a multi-billion dollar investment in HP as part of his recent spending spree. It is Thursday, April 7th. You're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. And welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. I am Frank Holland in for Brian Sullivan. It's right around 5.30 a.m. here on the East Coast. Here's how your money and the markets look right now. First, we start off with stock futures pretty much flat across the board. You see the Dow pretty much flat. NASDAQ up slightly higher. This comes as stocks come off a two-day losing streak on the back of the Federal Reserve's latest policy meeting minutes. The central bank appearing ready to increasingly tighten monetary policy, including unloading as much as $95 billion in assets from its balance sheet every month starting in May. On the back of those Fed minutes, also want to check the bond market. Right now, we're looking at the 10-year, the yield right here at about 2.57. Something to watch as it continues to be over that key 2.5% yield metric. Oil market right now, we want to pay attention to that. WTI back under $100 a barrel. Now, this after the IEA states uh, announced plans to tap 60 million barrels from oil reserves. That's on top of the strategic reserve release by the U.S. Crude right now, again, under $100 a barrel right now at about $97 a barrel, up slightly this morning. We also want to get a check on crypto prices right now. Bitcoin this morning, slightly lower, about a percent lower right now. And across the board, we're seeing crypto slightly lower with the exception of Ripple, pretty much flat, but fractionally higher. All right, let's get to more of your morning's top stories. That includes Warren Buffett's latest investment. Silvana Hanau is here with those details. Good morning, Silvana. Hey, Frank. Thanks. So shares of HP are soaring this morning after Berkshire Hathaway revealed a new stake of roughly 11.4 percent. The position in the personal computing company is worth about $4.2 billion based on yesterday's close. This is the third big investment by Berkshire since Buffett's annual shareholder letter at the end of February, when the famed investor said of the equity markets, quote, little excites us. The SEC is investigating how Amazon disclosed its business practices. That's according to a report from The Wall Street Journal. A topic of focus will include how the e-commerce giant uses third-party seller data in the development of its own in-house brands. A spokesperson for Amazon telling the journal there is, quote, no factual basis for the claim of using other sellers' data. And the Chevy Bolt is surging back into the market despite a federal probe into the car's battery fires. Those fires had led to a recall of every vehicle that had been produced since 2016. GM will be running relaunch ads during the opening day games of the MLB. The company says it still expects record sales for the Bolt in 2022 and beyond, Frank. Savannah, thank you for that. You got it. 
Now turn our attention to the latest on Ukraine. That country's president is accusing Russia of trying to hide evidence of its forces killing Ukrainian civilians in parts of that country that Russia controls. This is the mayor of besieged port city of Maripol says that 5,000 civilians have died there since Russia invaded. Meanwhile, in Brussels, Secretary of State Antony Blinken and fellow NATO ministers meeting this morning on the group's next steps in addressing, addressing this crisis. Ukraine's foreign minister appealing to leaders for more weapons in its fight against Moscow. Our Sylvia Amaro joins us now from London with much more in that meeting. Sylvia, good morning. What's the latest out of Brussels? Good morning, Frank. Indeed, we're seeing NATO foreign affairs ministers meeting today, and essentially they're discussing further help to Ukraine. And this at a critical time in this invasion of the country, really. Yesterday, for instance, we heard from NATO Secretary General saying that there's no evidence that President Putin has changed his intention to control the whole of Ukraine. And it was indeed against this backdrop that the Ukrainian Foreign Affairs Minister, Mr. Koleva, said earlier this morning that Ukraine needs more weapons. My agenda is very simple. It has only three items on it. It's weapons, weapons, and weapons. We are confident that the best way to help Ukraine now is to provide it with all necessary to contain Putin and to defeat Russian army in Ukraine, in the territory of Ukraine, so that the war does not spill over further. One NATO country, the Czech Republic, has actually announced early this week that it's sending tanks to Ukraine. But let's see whether other NATO members will follow suit. And more broadly, Frank, what sort of practical help NATO will come up with at this meeting in terms of what they will do to support the Ukrainian army? Yes, yeah, Sylvia, certainly a lot to talk about. Uh, where is the EU in terms of energy sanctions against Russia? So we're seeing at the moment the EU going ahead with a ban on Russian coal. Actually, two European sources told me earlier this morning that this ban will be implemented as of August. And in the meantime, they're also discussing a potential ban on imports of Russian oil. Now, this is more difficult for the Europeans than putting an end to Russian coal. But indeed, there's more momentum behind that. And we cannot exclude that there will be also further sanctions from the Europeans when it comes to Russian oil. But for the time being, Frank, that is just a discussion. All right, Sylvia Amaro with the very latest from uh, London. Thank you for that. All right, turning our attention back to Ukraine, a key concern for Federal Reserve members, forcing them to hit pause on a potentially bigger rate increase at that March meeting, according to the FOMC's latest minutes. But a number of members becoming increasingly hawkish in recent days in order to tackle the continued threat of inflation, including shrinking the central bank's balance sheet by as much as $95 billion a month. For more on the Fed's policy path forward, let's bring in Roger Ferguson, former vice chairman of the Federal Reserve and a CNBC contributor. Roger, thank you for being here this morning. Great, Frank. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, you know, your insight is invaluable on a day like this. Uh, the Fed minutes yesterday, a lot more hawkish than many people expected. Markets clearly not happy with the tone. Do you think there's been an overreaction? And is, is there something in there uh, about this more aggressive stance that the markets may actually be overlooking that could be beneficial? Well, I think there are a couple of things to recognize. One, indeed, it is uh, much more hawkish. Two, um, it laid out exactly what the plan is for the uh, gradual reduction in the size of the balance sheet. 
Um, recognize also that they were clear about the uncertainties that they confront you know, on both sides. While they put more weight on inflation as a clear and present danger, I think they also saw that uh, things are very uncertain and consequently they're going to be you know, very data-driven. And so I think the plan as laid out is probably for two uh, maybe even three fifty basis point moves uh, over the next uh, the rest of this year, um, but I also read uh, clearly that, uh, as we saw in March, if external circumstances require a change of their plans, they are clearly ready to do that so it 's a fed that 's uh, clearly wants to get inflation under control but recognizes the external environment may be you know, a little more uncertain than um, than the plan itself. It sounds like you're saying the Fed is basically trying to stay as nimble as it can to battle inflation and other concerns. Um, the detail that tightening, they have a lot of people concerned. First, starting in May, a bit earlier than many expected. Also, that $95 billion, maybe a little more than a lot of people expected. Then you also had Philly Pred- Fed President Harker out yesterday saying that rates would be raised methodically to avoid recession. How should the market interpret these two messages coming out? I think they should interpret the messages as following. One, inflation is clearly perceived as a clear and present danger. Two, the Fed, I think, knows it's a little bit behind the curve and therefore has to move uh, more expeditiously to catch up. They should recognize the market that, in fact, the Fed is going to use both of its tools, both the uh, setting of interest rates, as as Harker said, in a methodical way, and also um, so-called quantitative tightening from the balance sheet. So all of those things are are true. Um, Second thing the market should recognize, and the March minute showed it, uh, depending on what the incoming data tells the Fed, they are prepared uh, to, you know, change their plans. Perhaps as I read those minutes, it looked as though a number of people uh, on the FOMC were prepared to go 50 the last time around, 50 basis points. But because of uncertainty and because of the lead of the chairman, uh, we're comfortable going 25 basis points. And so I don't think this is a set it and forget it Fed. I think this is a Fed that has a plan, but also will uh, take incoming data uh, as part of its guide. Um, And certainly they recognize something else that, you know, the so-called financial conditions, you know, what's happening with interest rates, what's happening with equity valuations will have an impact uh, on the economy and the economy's outlook. So I think they're looking at markets very closely to look at this measure of what's what's called financial uh, conditions. And the fact that stocks sold off for, you know, two days, I think, is uh, also important for them to reserve. Yeah, before we let you go, we want to talk about some of that sell-off. Tech stocks especially hit hard by the, uh, the minutes from that Fed meeting. How mindful is the Fed about the Wall Street impact and also the Main Street impact? Um, Obviously, inflation hitting a lot of people, people having a hard time buying food and putting gas in their cars. I think it starts, and you heard it, I believe, from uh, Governor Brainerd, uh, uh, soon to be the vice chair, uh, that it's the Main Street impact that is foremost in their minds for the reason that you point out. Inflation is a sort of nefarious tax, particularly on low and moderate income individuals, uh, and it's inconsistent with the Fed's uh, dual mandate. Um, And so I think Main Street is very much on their minds. The other thing that's on their minds from the market uh, is what's called financial conditions, so what's happening in terms of equity valuations. But I think they look at that not uh, as an end unto itself, but rather because it reflects uh, something called the wealth effect. It affects uh, confidence. And so the movements of equity markets are not sort of a direct goal, but an indication of how indeed uh, the economy might play as individuals feel more or less wealthy. Uh, and then obviously they also look to see uh, from the market and other survey data what's happening with vis-a-vis uh, market expectations on inflation. 
And there I think the market is uh, signaling in some areas a little bit of concern that mm-hmm. also inflation might run hot for a little longer than they want. And so the Fed takes in signals from all of these different areas. But in the inflation message is primarily a Main Street message. And then they look at Wall Street because that tells us something about wealth effect, potential confidence, you know, the cost of capital, right. et cetera. All right. We really appreciate your insight. Former Fed Chair Roger Ferguson, we appreciate you being here. All right. So to come here on Worldwide Exchange, Tiger Woods set to tee off at the Masters Tournament with the return of golf's greatest could mean for the game's bottom line. But first, as we had to break some of your other top stories this morning, the NFL, MLB and the NHL all making an investment in the global digital sports platform Fanatics. This latest investment which includes money from players' unions and team owners, totals $1.5 billion, with the NFL $320 million of that total. Shares of Levi Strauss climbing higher in extended trading after first quarter results topped expectations. The company's selling more of its jeans and T-shirts at a higher price point. Levi's also reaffirming its 2022 outlook. And Meta is reportedly planning to introduce virtual tokens and cryptos to its family of apps. According to the Financial Times, the company is aiming to use digital assets to reward creators as well as lending other financial services. Worldwide Exchange, back in a minute. Well, the first round of the Masters is set to begin just about two hours from now with 91 players vying for that coveted green jacket. Hideki Matsuyama is the defending champion, but nearly all the buzz among the patrons at at Augusta National, golf fans around the world, and the sports books in Las Vegas have been focused on just one man, Tiger Woods. The five-time Masters winner is scheduled to tee off at 10.34 a.m. Eastern. Woods making a remarkable return to competition just 14 months after a car accident that nearly cost him his right leg. Let's talk about all of this now with Damon Hack, reporter and co-host of Golf Today on the Golf Channel. Now, Damon, so lucky to have you here. I heard you only get up this early for a tee time normally, but we appreciate you being here. Uh, Great to be here. It's It's a huge day. Tiger playing for the first time since November of 2020. All eyes are on him. It's a very exciting morning here in Augusta. I can only imagine. So really quick, let's talk about the eye of the tiger, not that metaphor, but literally you were eye to eye with Tiger Woods earlier this week. You got to tell us, how did he look and did he give off that normal tiger aura that he used to give off before the crash and before a lot of these other problems? I tell you what, the age of 46, with everything he's gone through, it was the same old tiger. Spent some time with him, had a one-on-one chat with him on Tuesday before his press conference. He looked very, very serious, all business. Looked very fit. His stare was as reminiscent as he was in his 20s, height of his power. Then I went out and watched him play some golf during his practice rounds. He does have a noticeable limp, especially when he's walking downhill, that right leg. He said the rehab, he said he wouldn't wish it on anybody. Mm -hmm. I asked him how to compare it to when he played on a broken leg in 2008. He said this was much, much more difficult. That said... He believes he can win this Masters tournament and believes he can go back to being the player that he was before the car accident. So really quick, Damon, I've I've seen you on the Golf Channel. You're saying his swing looks good. He told you the back feels good. Is the leg really that big of an issue? And is it especially an issue this year? From what I hear, Augusta's a little wet this year, which might be a challenge. That's exactly right. In good years, in dry years, Augusta National, one of the most difficult golf courses to walk. It's hilly. There's uphill. There's downhill. You know, I ran into 1995 PGA champ Steve Elkington, who told me, listen, Tiger's swing looks great. His back looks great. The only issue he has to deal with is the leg. And that's one thing that he's thinking about. That's less than everybody else in this field. But it is a big question because the golf course has taken on more than an inch of rain over the last couple of days 
It's a it's a hard walk in good times. It's going to be a very very difficult walk for Tiger over 72 holes to see how that leg holds up. It's going to be a matter of how he handles the pain, the mix of rehab versus working out versus rest. How do you find that balance and then also try to compete against the best players in the world? All right, we're not going to let you leave here without giving your prediction. But first, I want to talk about something that's gotten a lot of buzz. Tiger's not wearing Nikes out there. Did he talk to you about why he's not wearing? Would, um, I kind of associate him with Nike. Why he's not wearing them? It's all about comfort. Uh, he's wearing a FootJoy model shoe this week uh, made by Titleist. It's all about finding the, the width and comfort in that leg. His foot, obviously, is a different foot. It's a different leg. He had comminated um, fractures in that right leg. So at this point, it's all about finding the proper fit for his shoe. He is a Nike man. We all know that. But this week, it's about finding a way to navigate these hills and hillocks of Augusta National, walking uphill, walking downhill. He has to be able to swing with comfort. He has to be able to walk with comfort. So, uh, you know, personal company loyalty aside, it's all about finding a way to make it to Sunday evening, which he hopes will have a green jacket on his shoulders. All right, you said Tiger thinks he's going to win. What do you think? I think we'll hear some Tiger roars over the weekend, I do think he makes the cut. I do not pick him to win the 86th Masters. He's pulled the rabbit out of the hat so many times, had so many comebacks in this now Hall of Fame career. I'm picking Brooks Kepka to win this Masters. He's a four-time major champ in his own right. I think we hear Tiger's roars over the weekend, but Brooks Kepka wins the 86th Masters. All right, Damon Hack, not afraid to give that prediction. And by the way, when are me and you playing a few rounds? you got to let me know. You call me. Spring is, spring is sprung, buddy. Let's make it happen. <laughs> Damon Hack, we appreciate you being here. All right, still Thanks, on deck Brian. here on Worldwide Exchange. Oppenheimer Asset Management's John Stoltzfus lays out the trading day ahead and what may be in store for markets with a more hawkish Fed taking shape. And if you haven't already, follow our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, check us out on Apple, Spotify, or other podcast apps. Worldwide Exchange, we'll be right back. And welcome back. Checking stock futures ahead of what's likely to be another rough day for investors right now. Looking at the markets, mostly flat. Uh, it looks like the Dow could open up very slightly higher. The Nasdaq actually seeing some growth after a pretty tough day yesterday. All right, watching bonds with the 10-year yield trading at its highest level in three years. The benchmark yield on the 10-year right now at about 2.575. And for much more in your trading day ahead, joining me now is Oppenheimer Asset Management Chief Investment Strategist and Managing Director, John Stoltzfus. John, thanks for being here this morning. Thanks for having me on the show, Frank. So obviously, uh, the Fed had a much more hawkish tone than a lot of people expected yesterday, and we saw the reaction in the markets. Um, a lot of concerns about the potential for the uh, economy to slow down. Is that why you're seeing or why you think we saw that sell off yesterday? Or is there some other factor? Well, I, Frank, I think it's quite normal for, for the market to, to react uh, adversely initially uh, as the Fed really gets a uh, uh, Fed hike cycle underway. Uh, and so that really, you know, didn't surprise us much. Uh, in fact, what did surprise us, you know, is, is the lack of appreciation the market has for the fact that the Fed has admitted it's behind the curve, it's pivoted, and now it's doing what the market had wanted it to do. You know, it, it, it's tapered the bond buy, buying uh, program, that's gone. Now, then it's also raised for the first time. It's even said it plans to raise as much as 50 bips, maybe twice in the months ahead. Uh, and in addition to that, uh, it's talking about uh, reducing the balance sheet and by uh, a trillion dollars annually. Gosh, what more can you want? But uh, the market never quite trusts the Fed, 
even when the Fed is a Bernanke legacy Fed and feeds the market very nicely and the economy. Yeah, I want to touch on that. You're saying this is a Bernanke legacy Fed, obviously uh, alluding to more transparency, just more information about plans coming out. Is that helping the Fed when it comes to its relationship with the market? Is it just maybe just too much information? You know, I, I don't think it's TMI. I really don't. I, I think instead it, 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 it's quite, it, it, it's quite uh, good that it does this. It's just that it takes a little while for the market to digest it. Uh, you know, I think the, the, the Fed chair is, is, is on the way to do the right thing here. Uh, and I think the market just is saying, I'm from Missouri, show me. If you remember that, that slogan <laughs> that they used to say. So we had Roger Ferguson on, former uh, Fed vice chair, earlier. And I I talked to him about how the Fed measures Wall Street versus Main Street. Uh, Tech stocks hit very hard by the Fed minutes. But a lot of people on Main Street, they're hurting, too, as far as inflation and gas prices. But then going full circle, a lot of them are also looking at their 401ks like, hey, what's going on? So when the Fed's making these decisions, how big of a factor in your mind is Wall Street versus Main Street? Oh, I think I think the Fed is really considering Main Street first. After that, there is consideration of Wall Street because there's a knockoff effect whether it's teachers' pensions, policemen's pensions, uh, fire uh, men's pan- uh, pensions, et cetera. Uh, this is, this is uh, it's something the Fed takes into account. And, and, and when it does the surveys from the regional Fed offices, it, it, this is all very important. Uh, but we would say, if anything, we think that the Fed is doing the, the right thing. And uh, related to tech, we think the sell-off is indiscriminate. And what really is important is separating the wheat from the chaff. There's a lot of good technology that's embedded in both the lives of business as well as in the consumers that's doing quite well through this and will likely do even better as things begin to pick up. All right, John, before we let you go, I want to, I want to ask you about one take you have. You're saying a lot of this sell-off is people simply taking profits without fear of FOMO. Um, if you don't have any fear of FOMO, what does that say long term? Because in general, people have been standing these mega cap tech names and other stocks thinking the market would just keep going up, up, up uh, and up. You know, I think that the thing is that the, the historic uh, long term effect tells you that good businesses uh, will weather all kinds of situations in the economy. And the prospects on a secular basis for technology and what it can do for all 11 sectors, including itself, uh, are really good drivers here. And I think people who are, have intermediate to longer term goals are staying more patient. I think they learned a lot over the course of the last 13 years. Very interesting. Well, John Stolzfuss, we appreciate the insight as always. Thank you for being here early with us this morning. Thanks, Frank. All right. That does this for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Tongue-tied all morning. Squawk Box is coming up next. I think they're going to be able to say all the names and everything right. Thanks for being here. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. 